invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians in your Bibles, the, the uh, fifth chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to invite you just to stay seated this morning. I'm going to read three chapters of Scripture. This will be um, our reading as well as our text for the message uh, the next few weeks because of the, um, some of the time schedules that I'm on. Um, next, week, next few weeks, I'm going to cover a large portion of Scripture, three chapters this week, four next week, and then three the following week. And so, um, you know, the great thing is, as I was going through and, and working through the book of Corinthians, it, it's amazing how it's broken down in that way. I'm not, I'm not doing it a disservice by, by cutting it apart like this. It actually breaks down uh, perfectly in this fashion. And so we're going to spend a little bit more time each week reading, and then, uh, Lord willing, we'll just do some work on breaking down the, the larger portion of Scripture. And so, um, so I'm going to invite you just to stay seated this morning. We normally would stand for the reading of God's Word, but because of the length of it, we'll stay seated. And if you need a Bible, there are Bibles up there in the back. If you don't have one with you, um, you're welcome to get up and get one of those, and you can follow along. Or uh, just listen, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, the Bible says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his own father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I am already I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning that the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since that since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer or a reviler or a drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I'm just going to make a comment here. It is so important that you get the distinction that's made here. He's not saying that you not associate with unbelievers who live like this, but he is saying if somebody calls themselves a believer, if they call themselves a follower of Christ and they live like this, then they must be treated differently. Okay? Please make that distinction. 
in your mind because as the Apostle Paul says, if you tried not to associate with people like that that are in the world, you would not be helpful in the world at all. So um, keep that in mind. Verse 12 says, for what, I, what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Chapter number 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you, why do you lay them before those who have no, standard, no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there, is, that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all, no, notice this, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Are you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And you are whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. Chapter number seven. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each one should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over 
her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if, my, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If anyone has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. In other words, there's an influence that the, the believer has on the unbeliever, wife and husband, and in addition to that, children. Otherwise, your children would also be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether or not you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at that time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his calling uncircumcised? Let him not seek, uncircum- or let him not seek cir- circumcision. For neither circumcision or uncircumcision account for anything but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who has called in the Lord as a bondservant, and let me say that again, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is the free man of God. Likewise, who, who, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. 
Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and and I would spare you of that. This is what I mean, brothers. The The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let us let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they were that they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For this present form of this world is passing away. I hope that's not confusing to you because it is confusing to me. There's so much there that we don't have time to unpack, but it just wants you to think about and meditate on some of these thoughts. Verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of God, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Let's note that last statement, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he has not behaved, that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and if it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Lots of stuff there to meditate on, lots of information. Powerful passages of Scripture, maybe even some things that you've never even thought of before. I mean, just like as you're going through it, it's like, man, I never knew the Bible even dealt with stuff like this. It does. Um, there's really nothing in, in life that the Bible doesn't deal with at some capacity. It's just a matter of uh, us finding it and unfolding it to where it needs to be um, and we need to interpret it properly. So uh, join me in prayer if you would, and then we'll get into the unfolding of this long text. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we have together. Thank you for your word. And we know that it is true. We know that it is live. It is, is active. It is capable of changing hearts in, in ways that we can't grasp. And so we put our dependence on it, even in this long text and the exposition that will be given. We know that... Um, We know and trust and expect that the word is what will not return void. And uh, we pray that you will bring salvation to the lost this morning, that you will bring healing to those who are brokenhearted, that you will bring sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And in spiritual ways, Lord, open up our hearts so that we might receive something from you. Help Help us not to leave here the same as when we came in, but to walk away, um, somewhat closer to you through your word. We love you, Lord. Um, 
It's a privilege and an honor to be a part of your family and to be here in this church. And um, we praise you for it all in Christ's name. Amen. The first crisis that we dealt with in the book of 1 Corinthians covers the first four chapters, and it is the crisis of division. And we talked about this the last several weeks, that the church was divided based upon different um, views of the leadership. They wanted uh, kind of had a selfish perspective or an external perspective of what leaders should be like, and so uh, the congregation had begun to attach themselves to different leaders, and that was splintering or dividing the church. That covers the first four chapters of the book of, of Corinthians. The next three chapters, which we just read and walked through, the next three chapters introduce us to the second crisis in the church, and this crisis is what I'm calling liberalism. Um, there are many other names that could be used here in a, in, a, in, a, in a culture that we're in today where that word has several different meanings. I know it's almost dangerous to use a word like this, um, but as I was just working through it, that was the word to me that made the most sense and explained the problem that we're dealing with in chapters 5, 6, and 7 in 1 Corinthians. So let me describe for you, first of all, what liberalism is, and then we'll unfold uh, what it looks like in the text. The word, the word liberalism comes from the root word to liberate, um, and, and uh, some other words that if you look it up, it would mean to liberate, to be at liberty, to have freedom or to be open-minded. So you think about liberation, um, you're thinking about this is kind of the mindset that a person has. It's almost like this is the filter by which they look at life. It is a a filter of freedom, liberty, no bondage, no, no boundaries, no restraints. And this is how a liberal, a liberal person or liberalism looks at life. This is how liberal people look at Scripture, um, and, and it's how they define kind of everything that they're doing in life. I want to acknowledge at the forefront that there is a good form of, of liberalism. Matter of fact, the Scriptures call us to liberalism in our giving. The Scriptures call us to liberalism in our serving others. The scriptures call us to liberalism in how we accept others. The scriptures call us to liberalism in our Christian walk. Galatians 5.13, it says, For you were called to be to freedom, brothers. You were called to liberty. You were called to be liberated. He says, Only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So this is a, there, is a, there is a liberty that we have as Christians that is a healthy liberty, and it should be, it should be manifested in, a, in, a, in, our, in the way that we walk through life. We shouldn't serve the Lord out of responsibility, out of bondage, out of, out of the fact that we're being um, fearful of what God will do to us if we don't obey him. We obey the Lord because we love him. It's a relationship that we have with the Lord that motivates us into obedience with him. So there's a great liberty that we have in Christ. And that is a positive liberty. It's a, it's a freeing liberty. At the same time that there's a great liberty that we have in Christ, there is a, there is a liberty or a liberalistic perspective of life that is not healthy. And what I, what I have referred to in my... Um, Manuscript here as being a bad form of liberal liberalism. 
And he even mentions it here in Galatians 5.13 that I just read to you. He says, do not use your liberty or your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This liberty that is a, a bad form of liberty or a bad form of liberalism is when men, Christians, followers of Jesus, or people who are in the church seek to be liberated from God. Uh, They seek to be set free from the restraints that God has set on them. They seek to be set free from the word of God and the responsibility that we have to God's word. They seek to be set free from the law of God, the rule of God, the order of God. Uh, These things, this, this liberation mentality is not just something that the world struggles with who are by nature constantly trying to be set free from the from the restraints that God has put on them, but it also infiltrates itself into the church as well. And mankind in the church seeks to be set free from any form of restraint. I was working through this this week, and that last night I was laying in bed, um, and, and sometimes on Saturday nights when I lay in bed, I just pray. And I just was praying, praying through this, this thought process and this, and this text, and my, and my mind went to, Lord, please don't let me be free. Please don't break your bands asunder. I I need restraint. I need something, guidelines and direction. and I need you to restrain me. There's no telling where I would go or what I would do if I did not have the restraining power of the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. I I need that. So he says that the the bad form of, of, of liberty or liberation is that they... They want to to free themselves from any and all of God's controls or restraints. They want to do their own thing. They want to be liberated. An example of this bad liberation is noted in in a recent uh, modern scholar. Some would call him a scholar. Some would call him a pastor. Um, I don't have really a term for him, but he, he he is quoted as saying this, the church needs to unhitch itself from the Old Testament. The church needs to unhitch itself. And what the problem is, is the church is not just unhitching itself from the Old Testament. The church is unhitching itself from everything that is biblical. And we go back to looking at all of the unity that he talks about in the first four chapters, and we all embrace that. But listen to me, liber- the, the unity that he calls for in first four chapters is not more important than the purity that he calls for in the next three chapters. It's not just unity that God calls for in his church, it's also purity. God has expectations of his people. We represent him. We don't need to unhitch ourselves. There's so much in the Old Testament that, we, that is meant for us that we can learn and we can grow, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great boundary. God didn't set forth the Ten Commandments for us because they were bad for us. He set them forth because they're good for us. How many of you guys like thou shalt not kill? We like that, don't we? Because it's good for us. It's protective. The Bible says a few other, a few texts that give us this idea of wanting to be set free from God. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bands apart and cast away their cords from us. 
In other words, let us be free from any restraints that God has put on us, even when those restraints restraints are healthy and good for us. The direction of the world, folks, listen, it's, 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 it's hard to get, it's hard to grasp, but the world's vision is not to make a greater world, it's to do whatever it can to resist the one who has created the world. It's a rebellious in their heart. They want to be free from any and all restraints that God has put on them. This is bad liberty. Jude, verse 4 says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, crept into the church unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is an unhealthy liberty, perverting perverting the liberty that we have as making it into a license to sin. Liberation, liberalism seeks freedom from truth and responsibility so that we can do whatever we want, turning grace into a license to sin. 1 Corinthians 5 through 7, we're going to see three observations about this liberation. We're going to see it conveyed in the church, we're going to see it cautioned in the church, and we're going to see it conquered in the church. So let's look at these together. We're not going to read the text because we already did, and it would take much time to go through it again. I want to give you thoughts to consider about these texts. Number one is liberalism conveyed in the church, or another way of saying that would be liberalism portrayed Um, manifested, seen in the church. What does liberalism look like in the Corinthian church, and how does it relate to 21st century? How does it relate to a church in Hollister, California? What What does liberalism look like today, and what did it look like then? Four things in our text. Number one, we find in chapter number five an unwillingness to deal with sin. A liberal church is a church that's unwilling to deal with sin in a serious way. And we see this with the man who was caught in adultery with his, or caught in an in a immoral relationship with likely his stepmother and the church. And remember this, chapter number five is not a condemnation of the man who was caught in sin. Chapter number five is a condemnation of the church not condemning the man caught in sin. It's not a condemnation of the man. The man should have been already condemned by the church. God should have, Paul should have never had to write the church a letter about condemning the man because the man should have already been condemned Uh, a long time ago. He writes this letter because the church isn't doing their job. They're liberal in their thinking and prideful is another word for it and unwilling to deal with sin in the church. And that's the first thought under liberalism conveyed in the church. It's the prideful unwillingness to condemn gross sin or to condemn sin at all. And the main sin of 1 Corinthians 5 is pride. They were full of themselves. They saw themselves as a gracious church, an accepting church, an open-minded church. And when I say those things, everybody thinks in their mind, well, those are all good things. No, they're not. They're not good things. Paul is not writing an encouraging chapter to the church at Corinth. He's writing a condemning chapter because they have allowed sin into the church. They have allowed gross sin into the church, and they haven't dealt with it in an effective way. They become so proud of themselves. We're so, we're so gracious. We're so kind. We, we can do all of these things and overlook sin. Listen, that's not what the Lord wants from us. They're a prideful sin, full of themselves, thinking about their own reputation rather than thinking of the reputation of Christ. 
It's not only a prideful sin, but we see also it's a, it was a public sin. It was a commonly, it says in the first verse, it was, it's commonly reported. It's something that everybody knows about. It's not just a sin that, that this person is committing in private, but this is, a, this is a, a sin that the community is aware of. This is a lifestyle that this individual is living. It's not a hidden sin or a private sin. And I think the Lord, the Lord is, is clear in, in his expression that we deal with these sins differently. Some sins that are public and they're out there need to be dealt with more harshly than those sins that are private. And I'll give you the reason for that here in a few moments. This was an obnoxious sin, an unrepentant sin. When this man was called to repentance prior to this, I believe that he was called to repentance and he refused to. I believe that 2 Corinthians tells us in chapter number 2 that at some point in time he probably likely did repent. But this is, a, this is an act on an individual that is, that is living in a public, unrepentant sin. And not just that, but it's an intolerable sin. He says even, even the pagans don't tolerate this type of sin. Even lost people think this kind of sin is, is something that needs to be dealt with in a, in a, in a, in a significant way. Some of the terms that come out of this uh, phrase or word that's used in chapter number five is um, this, this sin that's been actually reported, sexual immorality among you and of kind that is not tolerated even amongst the pagans refers to the idea of this being a gross sin, a horrific sin, a sin that ought to bring shame into somebody's heart. In morality, he lists in verse number 11 several things in morality, greed, gossip, drunkenness, dishonesty, and heavy-handedness. These are intolerable sins. And the issue is this. The issue isn't we, we, wanna, we want to scale sins based upon what we think about sins, right? This is not the issue here. The issue is all of these sins that are listed are impactful in the life of the church, in other words, greed that infiltrates the church is not healthy for the church. Sexual immorality that infiltrates the church is not healthy for the church. Gossip that infiltrates the church is not healthy for the church. Heavy-handedness that infiltrates the church is not heavy for the church, the healthy for the church. What he's saying is, is what I'm talking about is not the way that you, you measure sin, but the way that, that God measures sin. And these things are not healthy for the church. So first, we have a prideful unwillingness to deal with sin. Secondly, we have a selfish unwillingness to be defrauded. This is found in chapter number 6, verse 1, down to verse number 11. In other words, they're taking each other to court. A brother is taking another brother to court, and he's suing. They're suing each other because one believes that he has a right, and he wants to demand his rights, even if it means defeating his own brother. He says that they would not let themselves be defrauded or be taken advantage of. So they're going to go to court, and he, he, goes, he goes to a little bit of an extreme here, and he says they're not only going to go to court, but they're going to go to an ungodly, unrighteous court. But then he says this, he kind of concludes and says, you know, by the way, it's bad to take any brother to court in any level. Right? They take somebody to court doing whatever it takes to get what is yours in this life. 
As I was looking through this text, I was thinking of how thankful I was that Jesus Christ did not, was not of the same mentality that we are often. It would have been easy for him in the wilderness temptation when Satan came to him and said, after 40 days of fasting, he said, turn this, turn this stone into a bread and you'll, you'll be fed. The Lord Jesus Christ had every capability and every right to turn that stone into bread, but he would not he would not submit to the temptation of the devil giving in to that which was right, giving in to a temporary expression of what was already rightfully his eternally. Jesus had every right to food. He had every right to praise. He had every right to worship. He had every right to display his power. But what Satan was doing was telling him, you can have this now if you will sacrifice it for eternity. And I'll tell you something, that's exactly, what Jesus, that's exactly what Satan is telling you today. Satan is doing everything in his power to get you to convince you that you can have now what God promises you in eternity if you just forsake what you have in eternity. And listen to me, it is an exchange. You say, well, Pastor John, I, I just like to have both. Well, that's great that you'd like to have both, but you can't have both. It is one or the other. You pursue in this life all of the things that you have promised in eternity, the Lord says if you will save your life, you will lose it. But if you will lose your life, your temporary life, if you will lose your temporary life, you will gain it for eternity. All of these things were rightfully God's. And listen to me, health, wealth, and prosperity are rightfully ours, are they not? Does God not promise that believers are going to have health, wealth, and prosperity? How many of you believe at some point you're going to have health, wealth, and prosperity? All right, everybody else, you should raise your hand because you believe in eternity, right? How many of you believe in a perfect heaven with streets of gold and riches and wealth and no tears and no heartache and no pain and no sickness and no suffering? How many of you believe a heaven like that? Listen to me. The devil's lie is, is that he'll give, he'll give you that in this life. That's the devil's lie. And if you believe that lie, you will be sacrificing what you have already promised to you in eternity. It is the matter of accepting that this life is going to be full of difficulty, and I must live this life in that difficulty with the realization that eternity is great. This is why the health, wealth, and prosperity is of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is of the devil. It's exactly what Jesus was tempted with in the wilderness. Exactly what he was tempted with in the wilderness. And it's not something that we should take lightly. Matthew 16, 25 and 26 says, whoever would save his life, I quote it to you a moment ago, whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall a profit a man if he gains the whole world? If he gains the whole world but forfeits his own soul? What would a man give in exchange for his soul? I thought of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You can read it in your own time. But Jesus talks about being made like a servant and, and all of these things that in this life he limited himself. He, he, he limited his right to those things that were eternal so that one day he would, not so that, but one day he would have that which was eternal again, the glory that he was promised. The second the second. The second characteristic, if you will, of liberalism is unwillingness to be defrauded. It's a selfish unwillingness to be defrauded. Number three, the third 
characteristic of it is a sensual unwillingness to say no. The Apostle Paul says this in verse number, thir- verse number 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not good. Listen to me. The grace of God gives you a license to do whatever you want. No, remember that. The grace of God gives you the license to do whatever you want. It gives you the heart not to do whatever you want. The grace of God says you're forgiven. The grace of God says you're free. The grace of God says there's no boundaries. There's no, you, you, will never be, you will never be held accountable for what you do because Jesus Christ was held accountable for what you do. That's what God's grace says to you. But God's grace also says, I'm going to give you a new heart to where you will not want to do those things. He changes who we are. Sensual unwillingness to say no Uh, Chapter number 6 down, uh, verses 12 down to the very end of the chapter. I've heard people say this. I've heard Christian people say this. I'll do it because I can. Well, shame on you. Shame on you. More to life than that. More to life than that for a Christian. Sensual unwillingness to say no. No. We live as if our bodies were made for pleasure. Grace is a license to sin, and we can do whatever we want, not realizing that there's more to it in the end. The last, the last way it is expressed in the churches is an anxious unwillingness to be content. Chapter number 7 is simply that. You see all of these different things. Marriage, un, uh, uh, you see marriage and the unmarried, the divorced, the not divorced, the virgins, the, the, those who have been with a, a man. You see circumcised and uncircumcised. You see all of these things. But what he's, what he's ultimately saying at the end of the day is liberalism is unwilling to be content with where God has them. They're unwilling to be content or satisfied. The, the, the married is looking to be divorced. The divorced is looking to be married. The unmarried is looking to be married. The married is looking to be separated. The singles are looking for a companion. Those who have a companion want to be alone. Those who are circumcised want to be uncircumcised. And those who are uncircumcised want to be circumcised. The reality of it is 1 Corinthians 7 is all about the fact that you will just simply not be content with where God has you. So what do we do? I was talking to one of my daughters recently, and I said, listen, God has, God has seasons in your life. What you need to do is embrace what season God has you in and live the best that you can in that season. Stop trying to pursue the next season and live out the season that God has you in. Too much anxiety, wanting to be in control, wanting to change things isn't healthy for the church. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to the Lord. That's what chapter 7 is about. Number two, liberalism cautioned to the church. I'm going to take the same chapters, and I'm going to give you four cautions, those four things that we already talked about. Why is, li- why is liberalism a big deal in the church? Why does it matter that sin isn't dealt with? Why does it matter that people aren't willing to be defrauded? Why does it matter that sexual sin or sensual desires aren't resisted? Why does it matter that anxiety isn't overcome? Why do these things matter? Do they have, is there a reason why they matter? It's like, man, can't we just live life? Can't we just go through life and do what we want to do? Why do these things matter? Well, there's a very important several reasons I want to give you, and I hope that they'll be helpful to you. Number one is living a life of liberalism 
defames the name of Jesus Christ. He gives us this in verse number four of chapter number five. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus... In other words, when you're assembling under his name, he's referring to the church. When you are assembling and you are assembling saying that you represent his character, you're walking in his nature, you're experiencing and benefiting from all that he has accomplished for you, when you realize that and acknowledge that, things take a different perspective. You can no longer walk in, let me be free, God, to do whatever I want to do because your life is now a reflection of Christ. We reflect him. We represent him. We're a part of his team. When we, re- when we accept unrepentant sins, when we act like sin doesn't matter, we're reflecting on a Christ that doesn't accept those sins. There is no unrepentant sin that will ever get into heaven. There's no unrepentant sinner that will ever get into heaven. And the church has to embrace that, or we're just going to be liberal liberal in our thinking, and we're going to walk in, quote-unquote, freedom, and we're going to condemn people. When he says that these, those who walk in, those who represent Christ, those who are under the umbrella of Christ, this matters. Purity matters if you're representing Christ. It defames the name of Jesus Christ. Number two, it destroys the church. He says this, do you not know that a little leaven, which is a picture of sin, will leaven the whole lump? He says, if you don't deal with this sin, it will destroy your church. It will destroy everybody in your church. You can't allow this because it's destructive to the body of Christ. Unrepentant sin doesn't just hurt one person, it hurts everybody in the church. It destroys the church, and the church is the body of Christ. It's not like you're just, you're just, you, you hurt your finger, you hurt Jesus' finger. It's the body of Christ. We're reflecting Him, and as we allow things into the church that are destructive to the church, and we don't deal with them because we're so gracious and loving and compassionate. We're so, we're so free and open-minded that we're going to let all these things infiltrate the church. What we're saying is, is we don't really care about the church. I guarantee you, folks, I, I've raised five kids, and I tell you something. There are some things that I would not let into my house. Do you know why? Because I hate people like that. No. I would not let people into my house because I love my family. And if we love the body of Christ, if we care for the body of Christ, we have to treat it in such a way as to protect it and to purify it and to let it represent him well in what we do. Unrepentant sin is like a disease that infects the entire church. It won't stop with you. Let me give you the things that he mentions in the text here. Accepted immorality makes it seem okay to be immoral. Accepted drunkenness makes it seem okay to be drunk. Accepted greed makes it seem okay to be greedy. Accepted adultery makes it seem okay to be adulterous. Accepted gossip makes it seem okay to be a, to be a gossip. 
Accepted dishonesty makes it seem okay to be dishonest. Accepted heavy-handedness makes it seem okay to be heavy-handed. Why do you think our young people are growing up without any sense of, 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 of purity and morality? Because the church is full of junk. It's full of things that defame the name of Jesus. And listen to me, I get that we struggle. Everybody in here has something that you're struggling with. There's a difference between struggling with sin and getting help from God's people than than somebody who is embracing sin and has no desire to be helped out of it. None of these sins are acceptable before God, and if not repented of, they they will lead to condemnation. Undealt with sin demands repentance and faith. Number three, it eternally, get this, liberalism eternally condemns the sinner. It eternally condemns the sinner. What the apostle, what the apostle Paul says to the church is, get this man out of the church so that God can deal with him so that his soul might be saved in eternity. In other words, his flesh His sinful flesh is standing in the way of him having a relationship with God. And Satan is the best tool in God's arsenal to destroy the flesh. But if you read the end of chapter number 5, the Lord says, I will not give him over to Satan as long as you keep him in the church. So you know what, church? We protect them right into hell. That's what we do. It eternally condemns them. If this church doesn't do what it's supposed to do in Corinth, that man will continue to live the lifestyle he does under the protection and umbrella of God's church, and he will face God on judgment day. No matter how loving or kind you think you are, when you don't call sinners to repentance, you are condemning them. Luke 13, 3 says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's interesting. I want to read a little portion here and we'll move on. Verses number 9 kind of closes out. Verses 9 through 11 closes out this, this portion of Scripture. And listen to what he says. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Let me say this to you. Do you not know that? Do you not know that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is this something that we should just accept? Let's go on. Verse 12 down to the end of chapter number 6, number 4. It connects Christ. It connects, notice this, it connects Christ to sensuality. Verse 15 of that chapter says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
Do you not know that what you do is in, is in direct connection, that you are one with Christ? You are one with Christ? And when you do whatever you want to do, you are bringing Christ with you? Do you not know that? The connection that a believer has with Christ is a real connection. It's a real oneness. As much as a husband and wife is a real oneness, Christ and his people are a real oneness. As temples of God, we must know that all that we do involves him. We involve God's spirit in prostitution. We involve God's spirit in drunkenness. We involve God's spirit in greediness, in gossip, in dishonesty, in heavy-handedness. When we as Christians take these things lightly as if they don't matter, we involve the spirit of God in these things. It's what he says. I mean, you can read it again for yourself. It is clear as day that that's what he says in this text. There isn't even any ambiguity in the text. It's absolutely right there in front of our faces. I'm not not telling you John theology this morning. This is Bible theology. We've We've lost our way, folks. Imagine imagine doing the things that we see being done today in God's temple. Imagine if the Old Old Testament people, and they did. A few of them made strange fire and offered it to the Lord, which literally was fire mixed with with alcohol. They were, you know, they were having a good time, and they were making sacrifices to the Lord. And do you know how the Lord handled that? The fire jumped out of the the, uh, protective area and consumed them. No big deal, right? Who cares? Mixing, mixing some, some carnal pleasures with, with worship of God. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. It does matter. It connects Christ to, to our sensuality, which is sensuality is just another term for being controlled by our senses. Not only do I want you to imagine doing these things in God's temple, but I want you to imagine doing these things as God's temple. I've often prayed. You know, you pray and you thank God for his grace in saving you through Christ and what he did on the cross. I've often prayed and thanked the Holy Spirit for being willing to come and live in such a flawed temple. Because that's what it is. And I pray that I never take that lightly. It's one thing about being a flawed temple, which we all are. It's another thing if we act as if it's no big deal. It connects Christ to sensuality. Number five, it causes anxiety, hinders commitment, and involvement. You'll notice in chapter number seven again that what happens is is that the husband who doesn't want to be married just seeks uh, to be free. A husband that wants to be married seeks a wife. They're all seeking something different. They're all seeking something new. They're all seeking some kind of change. And they're not involved in changing their own situation. In, In other words, they're not involved in doing what needs to be done for their own marriage because they're too worried about wanting to be single. And that's what happens in the Christian life. In the Christian life, when we as Christians don't become content with where God has us, we become very ineffective. 
Anybody confess to that? Anybody be like, anybody ever been like that? Anybody ever been in this place, even in a church where you're like, I don't really know if I want to be here. And you notice that your effectiveness and your involvement just starts to slowly decline. Why? Because you're not committed. You haven't made a decision. You haven't been committed. Marriages are the same way. I get husbands and wives come in for counseling and, and they're just done with each other. And when they're done with each other, they're done with each other. That's what he says in chapter number seven. Listen, you're not content with where you're at. You're not going to be effective where you're at. You're not going to change your situation. You're not going to work at your situation. You're not going to work at your marital problems until you're content with your marriage. You're not going to work at your church until you're content with your church. You're not going to work hard at your job until you're content with your job. How many of you ever... How many of you have ever been have ever, have ever quit a job and like I got I'm given my 30 day notice right? In those last 30 days is that your most productive time that you've ever worked there before? <laughs> it's not, is it? Maybe maybe for you it is, but but normally it's not because you know that this is not where I'm committed. And that's exactly what chapter number seven deals with. Liberalism takes this mindset of I'm not committed, so I'm not involved. So I'm not active. I'm not working at things. I'm not involved in things. I'm not putting my life out to things. This is liberalism's liberalism. This is a caution for the church against liberalism. And then lastly, this morning is a conquer, liberalism conquered by the church. How can we win? I believe that we can win. I believe that we can win over liberalism, and I believe that we can be a church that represents Christ well. Um, I believe that we are. I, I, I think that we are. But I think we're also on the way. You ever been that way? Like, I think we have made so much strides, but I think we're still on the journey. And uh, we'll get there one day by the grace of God. In a culture that is prone to liberalism, wanting to be free from any type of restraint, what can we do to win? Let me give you a few thoughts in closing here. First of all, consider unrepentant sin seriously. Consider unrepentant sin seriously. Seriously. The Apostle Paul says unrepentant sin should break your heart. He tells them at least twice in chapter number five, you're proud that you've accepted unrepentant sin in your church and you should be heartbroken. It should break your heart. Listen, folks, we're talking about God's church. I heard recently a, a man was giving a testimony about his church and his comment was, the reason I like coming to my church is because they talk about a God that's bigger than we are and that he requires things of us because he is bigger than we are. It should break our hearts, not make us prideful when unrepentant sin is in the church. Put the unrepentant sinner out of the church. The Bible says in the text, do not even fellowship with him or eat or break bread with him. Matthew 18, 17 says to treat him like an infidel. Treat him like a, like a tax collector, like the worst of sinner. Treat somebody who is unrepentant in their sins. Why? Because you love them. Consider unrepentant sin seriously. Give them over to Satan. Take them out of the church's protection and let Satan deal with them. 
It's a hard thing to do. But it's the best thing to do. The only other text in Scripture that we have that uses this type of terminology is the book of Job. Job actually deals with this same in the Greek Old Testament. It uses the same phraseology that Satan, that the Lord gave Job over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And Job did. Lost everything, that, everything humanly speaking, that we could lose. He did, he did lose it. But you know what's interesting? Job didn't lose his soul. Didn't lose his soul. Matter of fact, in all that we read in the book of Job, you almost see a man who's dying on the outside but becoming stronger on the inside. You see a man whose physical world is falling apart but spiritual world is growing stronger and stronger and stronger. Consider unrepentant sin seriously. Don't take it lightly. Deal with unrepentant sin lovingly. And remember, it's not loving to allow unrepentant sin. It is ultimately eternally condemning. Discipline is loving, and the lack of discipline is hateful. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 24, he that loveth his son chastens him. Let me get this right. Proverbs 13, 24 says, he that hateth his son does not reprove him. And that is a paraphrase of that verse, but... That is the general idea. Hatred is associated with a lack of reproof, not love. Deal with them lovingly. The destruction of the flesh, according to the text, is for their salvation. Have a determined, note this as well, have a determined perspective of unrepentant sin. The Apostle Paul says this when he writes this letter to Corinth. He says, I've already made my decision. So listen, this is not a situation where you go off and, Lord, let me pray about this. As we see in the Old Testament with Joshua and Achan's sin, he's like, Lord says, get off your knees, Joshua. Stop praying. There's sin in the camp. Deal with it. Paul says the same thing. I don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to, I don't have to pray about this situation. I know it's wrong. You should have dealt with this man a long time ago. We need, listen, church, we as individuals need to have a determined view of things. What is right and what is wrong and we need to stand with it because the world is going to press us as hard as it can to slip down the slippery slope. And man, when you get on that slippery slope, there is no end to it. Have a determined perspective of unrepentant sins. Next of all, put others' eternal condition over your personal rights. Allow yourself to be defrauded Don't be temporal-minded, but be eternally-minded. The Bible says in Colossians 3 and verse 2, set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. Allow yourself to be defrauded for the sake of the gospel. It's the difference between laying up for yourselves treasures on earth versus laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Hebrews 10.34 says, For you have had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He says, Put the eternal things in front of the temporary things. And make sure you don't hinder the eternal things by the temporary things. The next thing he says is flee sexual immorality or flee sexual, uh, flee sensual desires. Where the apostle Paul says, "All things are all things are right for me, 
All things are okay for me. He had grace, so he had license. All things are okay for him to do. He could not be judged because he was in the grace of God. But he doesn't give us and encourage us to do that. Matter of fact, he says the very opposite. Flee sensual desires. Why do I flee sensual desires? Because you are connecting Christ to those sensual desires. It's all about Christ. We're reminded of that story in Genesis 39 of Joseph and Potiphar's wife when Joseph was, was uh, when she tried to, um, she tried to, whatever you want to call it, uh, be immoral with him, for lack of a better way of saying it right now. Um, and, and he just ran. And he just ran out. Ran out. The Lord says, if your eye offends you, what does he do? Pluck it out. I mean, that's not very serious, right? Take it easy, you know, right? No, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, slap it. You get a ruler out and hit it on the knuckles, right? And every time you do it, you just hit one more time on the knuckles. No, he says, get an ax out and hit your hand on the wrist really hard until your hand is no longer there. Is that serious? When he says flee, immorality, when he says flee sensual desires, he's saying that you're, you're a representation of Christ. You have Christ living within you. You can't take sensual things. You can't take them small anymore. Flee sensual sins. Run away from them. Escape them. And then lastly, be content and settled with God's purpose he has for you. Be content with where God has called you. Be content with what God has called you to do. And be active in working where you are. Be active and be involved and be uh, working at what you're, uh, where God has you planted now. Not active in where you want to be in five years from now. Not active in where you'd like to be, but be active in where God has you. Apostle Paul said it this way, Philippians 4.11, Not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, what's the word? To be content. To be content. Oh, how the church would be if God's people would learn to be content and satisfied with where God has them and what God has called them to. As noted in chapters 1 through 3, unity is important to the church and should be pursued with most cost. However, one cost that is too high for pursuing unity is the cost of church purity. We cannot pursue church unity at the cost of church purity. They must be married. The church cannot forsake purity in pursuit of unity, nor can the church forsake unity in pursuit of purity. They are necessary for reflecting Christ. The church must pursue unity and purity without compromising either. I close with Hebrews 12 and verse 14. It says this very simply, and it says it very well. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these three very long passages of scripture and being able to just cover them briefly this morning. I pray that you would take the truths that are there and plant them into our hearts. Help us to be constantly aware of the importance of the church, the body of Christ, not just that it be unified, but Lord, that it be pure, that we, we take it seriously, that we are the body of Christ. And we be content and satisfied where you have us and we work at it as, as we ought to do in marriages and church relations. Lord, we just, we need to be willing to work. Please bless us as we go from this place be with us and be with the funeral and memorial service this afternoon in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.